All right, Mark chapter 14. Uh, if you're with us for maybe the first time, we are going slowly through the Gospel of Mark. And we have been in the Garden of Gethsemane for some weeks, and now we're, art, we're out of the garden. We, we tried to dig all the golden treasure we could out of that and camp out there for a while. And this week, we're going to see Jesus on trial. In fact, that's the name of the sermon this morning, Jesus on trial. And I don't have any clever, gripping introduction. I really want to jump right in to what I want to say to you today. I want to jump into our, um, to our outline. And the outline is just three points we're going to see from this passage um, point one, we all put Jesus on trial. Every single person in this auditorium has, uh, maybe is, and will be tempted to continue to put Jesus on trial in your own way. And point number two from that is our verdict is unfair and unjust of Jesus. And point number three, Jesus is the true judge. And I'm debating now renaming that last point uh, to this. He's the only judge that can take it. <laughs> He's the only judge that can take our unfair and our unjust treatment of him. And his response to that is shocking and it's astonishing and it's wonderful and beautiful and powerful. And we're going to hopefully get into all of that this morning. Uh, but point number one is that we all put Jesus on trial. I don't want any of you to dismiss this point or write yourself out of the story. We tend to do that when we read the Gospels. Those dirty, angry, rotten, scoundrel, low-down Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and lawyers and all those crooked, corrupt, religious politicians, right? And we write ourselves right out of the story. But listen, guys, there's only room for one hero in this story that we call the Bible. Room for only one. There's only one faithful witness here, and it's not you, it's not me, it's not even the rock, Peter. You know, Peter caved, he crumbled. He's the rock that crumbled to a million pieces, we see here. And we're going to talk about that more next week. Um, but it is interesting to me if you look, this is just a free little sub point, okay? We won't, won't have time to develop it. But look in, verse, uh, look in verse 54. And Peter, well, let's just read it again, verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests. Notice that word all. All the chief priests and all the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter, and Peter, back up to verse 50. What's verse 50 say? And they, that's the disciples, all left him and fled. They all left him and fled. They betrayed him, they denied him, and they abandoned him. All the disciples. And read yourself into that story. And then all the religious leaders put Jesus on trial. They had this kangaroo court. It's a, a travesty, a miscarriage of justice like you've never seen before in the, in the history of humanity. But notice here Peter. And Peter followed him at a distance. Maybe... Maybe the Holy Spirit wants to grip you with that this morning. Are you following Jesus at a distance? Oh, you're not in the courtroom with the Sanhedrin and with the scribes and the elders, but you're following Jesus at a distance, at a safe, comfortable distance. He's just right on the outskirts of your life. Maybe you can see him and you can observe what's going on, but you're not really following him. It's interesting. It says that Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting he was sitting with the guards. See, this is all a progress. Spiritual decline is a progress. It doesn't happen. It's not like a hard jerk of the wheel to the left. It's like I've, I've told you before, you're on the interstate, you're going home to Arkansas to see your family, and you're on I-75 in Atlanta, and everybody's going 110 miles an hour, and there's 10 lanes, and all of a sudden, before you know it, you're on 65 West, and you're like, what the heck happened? <laughs> 
I don't remember taking an exit. No, you don't. You just veered and veered and got confused. And that's what happened to Peter. At first, he's boasting. He's proud. I'll never leave you, Lord. Even if everyone else denies you, I'll never do it. And then the next thing you know, you're drawing a sword and you're, you're fighting with people instead of praying and resisting temptation. And then you, before you know it, you're running away. And before you know it, you're sitting with the enemies, warming your hands before the fire. It's really interesting, the progress here, right? So don't read yourself out of this story. All of us, without fail, have put Jesus on trial in our own way. We don't get a free pass. All of Jesus' opponents and all of his allies at this point have failed him. He's been betrayed, he's been abandoned, and he's about to be denied by Peter, this next passage. But now he's being judged. Jesus, the judge of all the earth, as, as ironic as it may sound, is put in the witness stand. The judge is about to be judged by sinful, flawed people. And he's going to allow himself to be. He, he is what C.S. Lewis called in the dock. That doesn't mean like a water dock. I used to think that when I was younger. It's not what Lewis is talking about. That's a British way of saying you're on the, you're being accused. You're being put on trial for crimes against the humanity that you created. You're about to answer, Jesus. We all do this. Excuse me. We all judge Jesus. He's in the witness stand. He is absorbing our outrageous and slanderous accusations, but he's sitting there in silence like a sheep is silent before its shears, like a sheep goes to the slaughter silently. He is fulfilling scripture. In fact, it's really interesting, and I want to say this because you may be like me. I used to read passages like this, and it would really trouble me when I was younger because I would think, poor Jesus, <laughs> you know? I feel sorry for Jesus. He, he, he's suffering here, and man, Jesus is like, he's off balance. He's having a bad day. He's off his game. And I forget what, what we read back in verse 49. The very, this is the very last thing that Jesus said to his followers who were mistaken and to his enemies who were also mistaken. Last thing out of his lips before this kangaroo court happens. You know what it was? Before he let them arrest him and let them take him, he says, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Don't you love that? It's like he's a helpless victim. No, he's not. He's a sovereign victor here is what he is. And there is nothing that is happening to Jesus here that hasn't been foreordained. And all of this is fulfilling scriptures. He is writing history as it happens. That's pretty astonishing. Amazing. I just love that. I love that he's in John 18 and 19. He's before Pilate and Pilate says, do you not answer me? Do you not know who I am, that I have the authority to kill you or to release you? And you know what Jesus says? He just gives these, these little hints of power and glory. I love that. I need it. People like me need that. He says, you would have no authority over me at all if it were not granted to you by my Father who's in heaven. I just love that reminder. I love what I mentioned last week in John 18, John's version of the garden and the arrest. 400 people, this mob with torches and clubs and swords comes to arrest Jesus and he says, whom are you seeking? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And in John's version, Jesus steps in front of his disciples and he says, I am he. Ego ami in Greek. Two words. And you remember what happens? He like pulverizes all of them. All 400 people fall to the ground. I love that. I need to see that. Mark leaves that out. And now it looks like Jesus is just his helpless victim. He's just uh, caught up in circumstances, not in control. Maybe what it looks like but it's about to change. But we put Jesus on trial 
But before I show you how we do that, I want to flesh this out a little bit, okay? And I'm sorry for this microphone kind of rubbing up against. Uh, this is the Sanhedrin. This is like the Supreme Court of Israel. It's the highest ruling body of religious jurisprudence in Israel at that time. These are supposed to be the dudes. These are supposed to be the protectors, the pastors, the theologians, the interpreters of Scripture. If you had a case, you would submit it to them. They're supposed to be your advocates. They're supposed to be for you and fair and impartial and unbiased and all of that. And the religious. This was the highest ruling body and it was modeled after Moses and his 70 elders. And they had the strictest rules for how you conduct a trial so that they could be guarded against miscarriage of justice. And yet take note what happened. And here's what I want to say about that as a preliminary point. Religious people turn on Jesus fast and furious. Now I know we hear that and I heard that a lot of my life too. And it just bounced right off of me. But I, I just, I want to put this in perspective. Now, don't get angry at me. Somebody asked me if I had a jacket this morning because it's so cold in here, right? And I said, no, but I may need a straight jacket after this sermon because I never know how this is going to hit you guys. We're all here this morning. So in some sense, we're religious. Wouldn't you say, I know we, we reject that. I'm not religious. I'm, you know, it's not about religion. It's about relationship. I get all of that. And I know there's false religions. But just for the sake, the book of James uses the word religion, okay? And I'm using it in the way James does. Uh, pure and undefiled religion before the Father is this, that you visit the orphans and keep yourself unspotted from the world. So we use religion in a good sense. We're all religious here. Here we are at Sunday. We could be at home in bed with the heater on, binging on Netflix, or watching some early Christmas Hallmark movies, or whatever your thing is, and yet you're here. You're religious. That's awesome. Praise God for that. You could be a million other places, and you're here. Some of you drove a long way. Praise God for that. Um, and I need to warn you, since you are religious, that you are more likely to turn on Jesus than the harlots and the tax collectors and the criminals and the thieves. Ouch. I mean, all I'm doing is just interpreting the New Testament. Isn't that what happens here? I mean, those are the people, those are the, the, the harlots and the tax collectors, the notorious sinners, the rebels. They love Jesus. They embraced him. Who has Jesus on trial here? The most, re, the most religious people in Israel. They put Jesus in the dock and they're about to level some serious accusations against him. And his followers, they're MIA, they're AWOL, they're out of the picture. They're about to deny him three times. His most ardent follower is about to deny him three times. So do not write yourself out of this story. We're all in here. All of us, I'll show you how, we all put Jesus on trial. We all put Jesus in the dock, religious people especially. And this is kind of crazy what happens here because... This kangaroo court, it's kind of calm and it's a little bit laid back and all these religious leaders think they've got this in the, man, they've got this thing nailed. It's exactly where they want it to be. But something happens in the middle of this trial that they didn't expect and they didn't predict and they go crazy. I mean, this kangaroo court goes berserk. It turns into a riot. I mean, if you can imagine, I don't know what kind of famous trial you've seen. I don't even want to mention any, but just imagine a trial and, you know, you got the judge up there and he's got the gavel in his hand and order, order in the court. Everything's calm and planned and in control and you've got security. Imagine if the jurors jumped over that jury wall and attacked the defendant and started pulling his beard out, spitting on him and punching him. What would you call that? Berserk? Crazy? P pardon Pardon my French, but it's almost as if all hell breaks loose in this, in this trial, that Jesus is on trial here. What happens? 
What is going on here? Well, listen, until you understand the claim that Jesus makes here, you're not going to understand the rest of this passage. So, so we got to talk about that. You won't understand the reaction until you understand the claim. So let's take a look and what makes this go from boring to berserk. Because I want to read for you verse... See, I want to read to you verse 60. And we're going to go back to some of these earlier verses in a minute and point number two. But verse 60, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? Because they're making all these accusations and false testimony and false witnesses, false evidence. And Jesus is silent. He's not going to engage in this insanity. He's not going to do it. And the high priest says, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him. Now listen, this is Mark's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, it says that the high priest put Jesus under a solemn oath, which is the highest religious oath you can place on somebody uh, from the Torah, from the Old Testament. He puts Jesus under oath and he says, I abjure you by the living God, answer me. And then here he says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus answers him. And then I want you to look at the reaction here. Look at the reaction of the high priest. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face, strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. You see that last word? And the guards received him with blows. So this is not just Rome. This is the Jews. This is religious people are beating Jesus up. Whenever the high priest tore his garment, that is a sign of horror and outrage and grief and shock and rage. And when you see that in Scripture, you should sit up and pay attention and say, okay, I'm, I'm, familiarity breeds apathy and contempt. I've read this and heard this story so often. What, what was it exactly that Jesus said that made this high priest react the way he did? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> but before I answer, I want to say this. Jesus ought to provoke a reaction in us, friends. The last reaction that Jesus should have on you is to yawn. And say, yeah, 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 I believe in Jesus and show up in church a couple times a year. No, Jesus produced a reaction. He garnered a response from people, either outrage or adoration or terror. Nobody ever said, oh, that sounds, what a nice guy. Where did he get that? Nobody ever said that. Jesus provoked a reaction. He intends to because his claims are radical and they're outrageous. They were then, they still are now if we listen and pay attention. He was not regarded as a mere moral teacher or a good man. He didn't produce that effect on, on anybody. No, here Jesus answers the question about his identity that everybody has been wondering about. It's almost like in Mark's gospel, there's this messianic secret. Jesus is kind of unclear about who he really is, but now all the cover comes off because this high priest put him under oath and he said, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the promised one in the Old Testament? 
And then he says this, are you the son of God? See, Jews wouldn't mention the name of God. It was too sacred for them. So this high priest uses an adjective. Are you the son of the blessed? So there's no mistake. We know what he's saying here. He's asking him, are you the son of God? Are you God? And Jesus, with a play on words, uses his own question against him or to answer him. And he says, check out what he says. He says, I am. Which again, that's what knocked him to the ground in the garden. I am. This is an explosive answer. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. See, Jesus says, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of, he doesn't mention God's name either. He says, the right hand of the power. So Jesus is saying, I am exactly. This, this high priest uh, you ever hear it explained like you give somebody an underhanded softball pitch? Like just set them up to knock it out of the park. And that's what he does to Jesus and for us. He's like, I'm giving you an opportunity. Are you saying what we think you're saying? And Jesus says, I am saying what you think I'm saying. And I'm saying much more than what you think I'm saying. And that's why you get the reaction that you get. And Jesus, in fact, I, I put this on a slide. Jesus quotes two Old Testament passages, one from the book of Daniel chapter 7 and one from the book of Psalms, chapter 110. So this is what those people would have heard Jesus say. Let me read this to you from Daniel. This is Daniel's prophecy. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven. Now, this is not the clouds of earth. I'm not talking about Jesus coming in on some, some uh, accumulus clouds or whatever those science class is, is long gone now. But, you know, there's like three. He's not talking about that, okay, for you science people out there. This is the clouds of heaven, the Shekinah glory. This is saying, here comes God, is what this is saying, with the glory and the radiance that only God can have about him. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Are you starting to understand why they were really angry? Jesus is saying... I am who you think I am, and I have dominion and glory and a kingdom. And then he goes on, Daniel does, so that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Man, this is like, this is Jesus in the dock, in the witness stand, and all of a sudden there's this scepter in his hand, and there's a crown on his head, and they don't like it. They don't want that to be their Messiah. They don't want that to be God. They don't want him to have authority and power and glory and dominion. And for none of that to ever change because it's an everlasting dominion. They don't want that. This is language that they're outraged at. And then he quotes Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then it goes on to say the Lord. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Josh. The Lord is at your right hand. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute justice among the nations. See this? Jesus is provoking this reaction intentionally. He's finally speaking up and he's not using riddles. It's not enigmatic. It's not obscure. It's very clear what his claims are. I am God. I am the son of the most blessed. And you're judging me right now. But one day I'm going to come back and I'm going to judge you. That's what Jesus is saying. They don't like that. This is not the first time Jesus has provoked a reaction. Do you remember in Luke's gospel, chapter 4, 
Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. It's really cute. Jesus, Jesus the carpenter that became a pastor. You know, I used to get this when I would go home at Christmas when I was younger. Oh, it's Tommy. He went to seminary. You want to share a word with us? You know? So Jesus goes to his hometown. He goes to the synagogue. He rose up. And they're like, let's let Jesus lead the devotion today. So they give him the scroll of Isaiah. And he reads the scroll. It's chapter 66. And Jesus starts preaching the gospel. And he says, truly I say to you, this very day, these scriptures have been fulfilled. And the scripture he read was, uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he's anointed me to preach. And he has sent me to set at liberty those who are captive, to, to set free the oppressed and the poor and the broken and the weak. He's making outrageous claims about who his audience is. And they don't like it. And do you know what happened after that sermon? Some people stood up and clapped and other people left and murmured. That's not what happened. You remember what happened? It says they all gnashed their teeth at him and drug him to the hill on which their city was built and tried to throw him off the cliff. Did you know that's in the Bible? That was the first reaction to one of the first sermons Jesus ever preached. He preached the gospel. They tried to throw him off a cliff. And things haven't really changed much. Because that's outrageously offensive to people. That Jesus is Lord. That's an offensive confession. Jesus is Lord and the implication is you aren't. You're not. He's Lord. That's the most irreducible confession of the early church. Three words. Jesus is Lord. Because everyone in the Greco-Roman world said that Caesar's Lord. And Jesus came and said, no, I'm Lord. I'm the king. I'm the judge. And man, they did not like that. And if we're honest, we don't like that either. That is an explosive claim. It's explosive and it's offensive. This is unambiguous language. And I love this, that Jesus, he, he, Jesus didn't come and say, oh, shucks, I don't know. You know, he came making outrageous claims like that. He came with authority. And I love that. Jesus could have answered every riddle and unraveled every mystery in the world, but he didn't. He didn't tell us if Bigfoot's really real. <laughs> he didn't solve the mystery of the crop circles or any of those things or Stonehenge. He didn't mess with any of that. He talked to people directly about the state of their soul and they didn't want to hear it. That's what he came to do. I love that. And what they basically say, while they tear the robe, while they're so angry, is because finally they have somebody to blame for everything going on in the world. Because that's not what they expected the Lord to be like. And sometimes if we're honest, that's not what we expected the Lord to be like either. Because if he's sovereign, if he's, if he's wearing a crown and has a scepter in his hand and a gavel in the other hands, then that means, Jesus, you're responsible for all of this, for all of this, for my life. You're responsible. You're to blame. You're in the dock. How many people believe you've ever put Jesus on trial? Don't raise your hand. Because <laughs> we all have. I have. Why don't you give me a kid like this? <laughs> hey, listen. <laughs> listen, let's just all be honest today, okay? Why is my health like this? Why is my marriage like this? Why is my life unraveling like this? This is not what I signed up for. This is not what I expected. This is not what I wanted. This is not what I asked for. This is not what I prayed for. When you get that phone call or when you get that diagnosis. I mean, there's, there's, there's two ways I think we put Jesus on trial. One is the evil and the suffering and the injustices in the world, right? We lay that at his feet. 
Why is this world so messed up like this, God? Why are children molested? Why are third world countries, people are famished and they're starving? Why, God? Why are you letting this happen? Why did you create a world that would exist like this? That's one way. That's one way that we see evil and suffering. And by the way, we've, we've already gone over into, into point two here. Uh, point two is our verdict is unfair and unjust. We all put Jesus on trial and we're going to lay all of our accusations and blame at his feet. Say, why did you do this? Why did you not do this? Why didn't you rescue him? I heard a song by Josh Garrels the other day, and I'm not going to sing it, but the lyrics are really deep and profound. And he says something like, uh, why do the good men die and the bad men thrive and Jesus cries because he loves them both? That's kind of our, why do the good men die and the bad men thrive? Why does that happen? Why are things the way they are? Why is, is somebody allowed to take a gun into a school like they did last week and shoot everybody up again? Or maybe if you have a nationalistic, uh, patriotic spirit and you're troubled by how America seems to be like a cartoon strip right now on the world stage for the impeachment trials, right? No matter how you feel about the president, this is not a statement for or against. I'm just saying people are troubled like, what the heck, man? Can the two parties in our nation not even get together? What's going on? Whatever it is that you're angst up about, ultimately, we put Jesus on trial and we lay the blame at his feet. Why am I the way I am? Why am I depressed? Why do I have cancer? Why am I still single? Or why am I in this marriage? Or why do I have these kids? Or whatever it is. So that's one dynamic of putting Jesus on trial. I was reading... I was reading the story of one woman, and, and this is regarding child abuse, and she said this, I had studied the origin of evil in theology classes, but it's one thing to sit in a classroom and talk about atrocities done to strangers. It's another to listen while a good friend tells you that she was seven when she begged Jesus to make the rapes stop. A prayer that wasn't answered for a decade when she finally left home for good. Now, I'm sorry if that troubles you or leaves you unsettled, but I, I, I want... I want us to take the Bible and say, this either applies to life or we're all wasting our time here. Does the Bible have anything to say about that? Because that's the world we live in, people. It is. And when you get out of the classroom of God is sovereign and Jesus has ultimate authority, well, let's apply that. That means there's some things that are happening and I can't, there's like this huge gap of darkness between, I thought Jesus was like this, why is he allowing this happening? Here's another quote. God, why would you spin the rings of Saturn but not bother to fix a nickel-sized flaw inside my child? This is about a mom who had a daughter who had a hole in her heart and prayed and begged and prayed and begged and pled the blood of Jesus and cast out all the, you know, she, she used all the formulas she, she'd heard growing up and God didn't seem to answer her prayer and she was left just in hopelessness watching her child die. Everybody puts Jesus on trial, if we're honest. Sorry if this leaves you a little bit unsettled or makes you apprehensive, but I want to talk about these things. I want to get them out in the open and say, does the Bible have anything to say about this or not? So that's one way that we put Jesus on trial. And here's another way. We say, yeah, Jesus has authority and he's the king. And you know what? I don't really want a king. I don't want a king because I'm doing a pretty good job of it myself. I don't want Jesus up in my business. I don't want Jesus in my kitchen. I don't want him putting his finger in my pie and sticking his nose where it's not welcome. 
right? Because what kind of king are we talking about? Well, Jesus says things about the way you use your body. Did you know that? He's Lord. That means he's Lord over how you spend your money. He's Lord over sexuality. He is. He's either Lord over everything or he's Lord over nothing. G.K. Chesterton once said, I think it was him, who said, the authority of God and the sovereignty of God means this. There's not, where, there's not one square inch found in all of creation where Jesus can't say, mine. And that is a finger in a lot of people's eye. They don't want it. See, the Sanhedrin did not like that. They didn't want Jesus to wear that crown. And maybe we don't either, if we're honest. Even though we're here on a Sunday morning and we're religious and we're singing songs, but we have limits and boundaries to God's authority. And when he crosses it, we'll put him in the dock just like they did and say, how dare you? Who do you think you are? See, that was what, that's what he asked. You know, the high priest asked Jesus, who do you think you are, mister? And he said, oh, I'm God. I'm glad you asked. I'm God. And I'll take responsibility for all this to an extent. See, we're the point here is that we're unfair and we're unjust. I mean, do you, let me ask you a question. When you read this, do you really think that the Sanhedrin were unbiased and impartial and they were trying to really collectively gather evidence so that Jesus would have a fair trial? No. It's funny. In Matthew's gospel, it actually says these words. It actually says, and they gathered false evidence against him. I mean, man, talk about that's the thing you want to conceal, not reveal, right? But notice what Mark says. He says uh, in, verse, in verse 55, Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony. What's that next word? Against. Not about. They were all seeking testimony about Jesus to see who he really was. No, 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 no. It's, it's already slanted. It's all against Jesus. They are seeking evidence against Jesus. And they're going to find the most outland, outlandish twisted, perverted things they can find. And by the way, this is all trying to get, they're trying to push this, rush this through. Everything about this trial, I don't want to bore you with, with, uh, with details, but maybe this would be helpful. Everything about this trial is illegal. It's against their own written laws that they had at the time. You're not supposed to have a trial at night. Whoops. <laughs> You're not supposed to have a trial during a festival or a Passover especially. Whoops. You're not supposed to have a trial outside of the sacred temple where they conducted all those things whoops three strikes they're not after they're after the truth like a thief is after a policeman care anything about the truth here all they want is to get rid of jesus they want him gone off his throne on that cross that's what they want and that's what they'll get ultimately and if we're honest folks can we just be honest and keep it real? Sometimes we're not so excited about Jesus having that crown on his head and that scepter in his hand. We don't like those passages like Psalm 115. For he sits in the heavens and he has done whatever he pleased. Oh, when your life's going good, you'd love that. You'll claim that. You'll stencil that and put it on your wall, right? But when things aren't going so well, you don't like that. When the trials come, when the affliction comes, when the conflict comes, when your business is spiraling out of control and you don't even know if you're going to be able to provide for your family, or when your kids that you brought up and nourished them in the faith and they go AWOL and they rebel, that's not what you signed up for. That's not what you thought Christianity was about. 
Can any of us relate? Where were you, Lord, when the drunk driver crossed the center line? When my marriage was unraveling, when life was slipping away, when the abuse came, the miscarriage, the sudden death, the insomnia. That's where the rubber meets the road. Above it all sits a God enthroned with authority and power, and we want answers. What kind of God is this? We all put Jesus on trial, and our accusations are unfair and unjust. They couldn't even get two people whose testimony agreed. <laughs> Do you know that? They couldn't. Nobody had anything. And, and by the way, the reason that they conducted this at night and only let it, only let it, <laughs> obli obli only let people who were antagonistic and angry at Jesus, because listen, if they would have had this in the middle of the day and opened it up for testimony, people would have came and said, hey, he raised my brother from the dead, Lazarus, tell him. Or he cast the demon out of my son and he was going to die. Or he fed us, we were hungry. He stopped the storm, he rebuked the fever, he cured the leprosy. They don't want to hear any of those testimonies. They want to drum up false accusations. It reminds me of the four college students that arrived to take their test at college and they were late. And they said, I'm so sorry that we're late, teacher. We, uh, we had a flat tire. And she said, that's okay, no problem. She put them in different desks in the room and she said, only one question on this test, which tire was flat? <laughs> <laughs> and none of their testimony, you see, could agree because <laughs> none of it was true. All they had was some outlandish, perverted, twisted thing that they said Jesus said in John chapter 2 and they misapplied it when he said destroy this body and in three days I'll raise it up they accused him of being seditious against the temple and inciting people to violence and to vandalism and all of that and he of course he wasn't so our uh, putting Jesus on trial is unfair and it's unjust Tim Keller wrote a great book on Christian apologetics that has really helped me. It's called Making Sense of God, An Invitation to the Skeptical. And he says, when you have anger and maybe doubt toward God and toward his authority, he says, it's okay to have, it's okay to have the doubts, he says, but be suspicious of them. Doubt your doubts. Question your questions. What's behind this? What's behind this? Why am I questioning God here? And normally, if we're honest, it's because we feel threatened by God's authority. God's authority is jamming up my freedom. I don't like it. I was a college pastor, and I don't want this to offend anybody, okay? I was a college pastor for five years, and I had no clue what I was doing. And I regret most of the things that I did as a college <laughs> pastor. The lessons, I've already deleted all of them, most of them. Uh, and the people that I've heard, I've apologized to all 50 of them, I think. Um, but... I would see college students go off to college and they would come back and they would have questions. Like, I don't know, Pastor Tommy, I don't know about the authority of the Bible and the veracity of the scriptures. And, and man, when I would start to dig and start to dig and I would start to dig, like, man, what really? I, I don't understand. When you left here, you were like, man, you were like leading devotions, leading the college stuff. And, what? and then it's like, well, you know, I got this girlfriend and she's not a Christian. So I, I don't know. Oh. Oh, okay, I, I see now. I understand. Sometimes, I'm not saying all the time. Sometimes if we dig and if we're honest, uh, it's this authority thing that gets us. I don't really want Jesus to be Lord in my social life, my dating life, my sexual 
preferences, whatever it is, or my money. This whole thing about giving, giving back to God, I, I don't know, Pastor. Sounds like Jesus is poking his finger in my pie a little bit. Aldous Huxley confessed that what drove him to atheism was a desire for sexual freedom. He wrote, we objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. Isn't that interesting? Here's an atheist just confessing honestly. I just didn't want Jesus to tell me what to do with my, with my body. You can't tell me how to live. You can't tell me what to do. Keep your laws off of me, Jesus. Keep your claws. You can't tell me how to raise my kids. You can't tell me who to sleep with. You can't tell me to go to church. People don't like that. For most people, it wasn't Jesus hanging on a cross that offended them. It was him sitting on a throne. That's a threat. Because if Jesus, who he says, if Jesus, let me say it a different way, since Jesus is who he says he is, there is no corner of my life that doesn't belong to him. There's no claim on my life that he cannot make. And that troubles people. They don't like that. Jesus is Lord. He's not a consultant. He's king. So let's move on to the last point here. So we got Jesus. He's on trial. He's in the dock. And he's made an outrageous claim. He's the king. He wears a crown. He has a scepter. But there's something else that he says in there that you may miss if you're not careful. Jesus says, I'm coming back at the right hand of the power. And he's saying, I'm coming back as judge. I am coming back as judge. And man, that really, really doesn't sit well with people. Jesus the judge, no thank you. But listen, guys, listen. If there's no judge, then we're all hopeless because, because evil is going to be unaccounted for. There's no ethics. There's no morality. There's no ultimate meaning, right? It's all chaotic and confusing, confusing and absolutely meaningless. The whole creation is. So we have to have a judge. We got to have a judge. We have to have somebody in authority. We have to have organization. We have to have order. There has to be power. There has to be rules. There has to be law. There has to be a judge to enforce them. So we have to have a judge. But if we have a judge that's so holy and so righteous like Jesus, then again, we're hopeless, right? We're, we're like in a catch-22. What do we do? Well, I want, to tell, I want to tell you, you know the rest of this story. What does this judge do? His response to this, ultimate response, not in this passage, but we know where this Passion Week is headed, right? This judge is going to be hanging on a cross for the very people who accused him. That just blows my mind. That's astonishing to me. To think, let me, let me put it like this. This is the third point, final point, and we'll be out of here. So what does this judge do at all these people putting him on trial with their unfair, their, their, their biased, and their unjust conclusions? How does he respond to that? Does he annihilate them? Does he destroy them? Does he crush them? You know what he does? Jesus comes down out of the judge's chair. He leaves the gavel there. He leaves his crown there. And he comes down and he puts his arm around our shoulders. And he says, look, how, how about we do this? How about we, we do a transaction here and, and I take your place? I'll be here and, and, and I'll be accused. Because all of you are accusing me. It's actually you who are being accused. But you won't be able to withstand my accusations. So how about we trade places? And I'm like, oh, that sounds great. So you mean uh, 
we're the judge and, and, and you're the defendant. He says, no, no, there's only one judge. You don't get to take the gavel. My father belongs up there, but, but I'm going to come down here and we're going to trade places and I'm going to take the judgment that you deserve. That is astonishing to me. That's the gospel, folks. See, if we don't have a judge, we're hopeless. But if Jesus is our judge, then there is hope, right? Because Jesus trades places with us. No other judge would do that. There is a famous play that was written after World War II, and it was written by an East German, and it's called The Sign of Jonah. You guys can imagine, after World War II, after the Holocaust, Germany had to come to account for what happened. There was a reckoning in the people's hearts. How in the world did this happen? How in the world did we slaughter millions of Jews? How in the world did we allow our neighbors to just turn on those that were weaker than them and slaughter them wholesale? How do we do that? Somebody's got to bear the blame for this. So that's what this play was about. And East German wrote this play. And it was a strange play. It was just a bunch of people on a stage and the lights were dim and they were talking. They were like, who's responsible for this? Who did this? And one of them said, well, it was the people of Germany. They're responsible. And they said, no, no, no. They had a leader. It was the politicians' fault. Yes, the politicians, they're to blame. They're like, no, no, it was actually the soldiers that went to war that nobody twisted their arm. They didn't have to go. So like, yeah, they're the blame. It's their fault. And ultimately, and they say, you know, it's Hitler. He's going to have to bear the blame for this. And like, no, he, he, he can't possibly bear all the blame. And so you know what they came to the conclusion of? The guy that wrote this play? It's God's fault. God did this. God created a world and he allowed evil and injustice and suffering and things like a Holocaust to take place. So God's got to answer for this. And so the very last act in the play, they drag God down from heaven and they put him on trial for crimes against humanity. And I want to read to you uh, just a little bit of that script, okay? Suddenly a man comes out of the crowd and says, I will tell you who's to blame for all this suffering. It's God. God who created the world of pain and allows these things to happen. And soon the whole crowd agrees with him and says with one voice, God is to blame, God is to blame, God is to blame. God is then brought down to the stage and is put on trial for the crime of creating the world and allowing all of its suffering. The trial is carried out and completed and God is found guilty as charged. Then the judge pronounces this sentence. The crime is so severe, this is, this is going to be the worst of all sentences. I hereby sentence God to have to live on this earth that he created and to suffer as a human being. Three top angels are then given the task of carrying out the sentence. The first angel walks out on stage and says, I'm going to see to it that when God serves this sentence, he finds out what it's like to be obscure and to be poor. He'll be born in the middle of nowhere in a weak nation with a peasant girl for his mother, and there'll even be suspicion of shame about his birth, and then he'll have to live as a Jew in a world that hates Jews. That'll show him what it's like to suffer. Second angel comes, says, I'm going to see to it that when God serves his sentence, he'll find out what it's like to fail and to suffer disappointment in what he does and from his friends. No one will understand what he's trying to do, and everyone will let him down. Even his closest friends will betray and desert him. That'll show him what it's like to suffer. And then the third angel says, I'm going to see to it that God finds out what it's like to feel agony and pain and desertion. I'll see to it that he dies a slow, agonizing, painful death 
with plenty of suffering before the end. And that'll show him what it's like to suffer in the world. And with that, the stage lights go out and the play's over. And everyone in the audience is allowed to sit for a while in the darkness with the realization that God already served that sentence. That play was staged for three shows in Manhattan. And when they closed it down, people went crazy. And in Berlin, it showed over a thousand times. Here's somebody trying to reckon with how in the world can God respond to all of this? And how does God respond? He says, you know what? I'll take the sentence because none of you can bear this. None of you can bear the sentence. I'll bear it. I'll trade places. And friends, that's... <laughs> how can we talk about God's judgment and not be unsettled by it and not be troubled by it? It's to end with the gospel. You know, I'm reading, I'm reading a biography right now Second closing here, right? <laughs> I'm reading a biography by a, name, a man named Roland. It's called Here I Stand. It's about Martin Luther. I just want to read this to you. I think I wrote it down somewhere. Uh, yeah. You know, Martin Luther, before he encountered the gospel, he was terrified of God and he hated God. Isn't that crazy to hear? Um, he was a monk. He devoted himself to the ways of monkery. <laughs> he joined a monastery. And he was honest in his writings later, and he said, somebody asked him, do you love God? He said, love God? I hate God. I hate God. Nothing I do appeases him. He says, my situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would appease him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. But then he discovered the gospel. You know the story. And this is what he said. If you have a true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God. For faith leads you in and opens up God's heart. And then you see the pure grace overflowing in love. This it is to behold God in faith that you should look upon his fatherly, friendly heart in which there is no anger or ungraciousness. He who sees God as angry does not see him rightly but looks only on a curtain as if a dark cloud had been drawn across his face. See, Luther encountered the gospel, and in the gospel he found a gracious God who pardons sinners. No longer this unapproachable judge, because that's God too. You can't diminish that. You have to satisfy that, and Christ did. Christ is the judge who came down out of the dock, out of the witness stand, and came over and said, let me be your substitute. I'll trade places with you. I'll take the curse so that you can get the blessing. I'll be crushed and crippled and destroyed so that you can be delivered. That's the gospel, friends. That's the astonishing gospel that we see here. We all put Jesus on trial. Our trials are unfair and they're unjust, but God can take it. He's the judge that we need. Do you know him? Do you know that judge? That sounds so crazy. Do you know that judge? Have you discovered the friendly heart of God in Christ? Then I hope you do on this day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your unbreakable, never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. In Christ, in Christ, Lord. In Christ, the, the justice of God has been satisfied. The wrath of God has been absorbed. You have taken the sentence that all of us deserve, Lord. We pounded our gavel And you took the sentence, Lord, on our behalf. You love us unconditionally. Lord, I pray if there's anyone sitting in the sound of my voice right now that doubts your love for them, you would please fill their heart 
with assurance right now on the spot, Lord. May they see a pardoning God, a gracious God, a loving God, a sacrificial God, a God who delivers, a God who rescues, a God who pardons and cleanses and justifies and adopts, a God who says, I give you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, a God who calls us heirs and joint heirs with Christ and allows us to reign with him and lets us be partakers of the divine nature and says nothing shall separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus ever. There's nothing that can threaten that. There's nothing that can keep us from your love, Lord. Thank you so much for that truth and that beauty and that power. And I pray if anyone doubts that today, you would give them the assurance that only your Holy Spirit can give. May your spirit come and bear witness with their spirit that they're children of God. May you, they cry out, Abba, Father, and know that they belong to you and that they'll always belong to you. And no sin they'll ever commit, Lord, could, could pull them away from you because nothing they ever did joined them to you. It was all grace. It was all from you, for you, and by you, given to us as a gift. Thank you for that, Lord. I pray as we sing our song of reflection, Lord, that you would deepen and strengthen and sweeten people's assurance that they are loved by you and that you, you extend your hand of grace and forgiveness if they will turn from their sin. Even now, if they'll turn from their sin and they'll believe the gospel, they'll be justified, they'll be forgiven, they'll be pardoned, and they'll belong to you. There's nothing we could ever do, Lord. There's not some great feat that you're asking us to accomplish. You did that. You accomplished that feat. You paid it all and said, it's finished. And you offer that to us as a gift. May we freely take it, Lord, and give you thanks for it this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.